Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where you plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person excited about going to Nobel Conference 54, Living Soil, a Universal un- a Universe Underfoot. And that conference is on October 2nd and 3rd, is hosted by Gustavus Adolphus College. We are live. The live call-in number is 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Very pleased to have in studio some of the world's leading thinkers on living soil. These experts are in the area for Nobel Conference 54, the only lecture program in the United States given that honor by the Nobel Foundation in Stockholm. So uh, welcome. Um, Dr. Frank Ucotter is an environmental historian, or perhaps to be more precise, a historian about how we think about the environment. David Montgomery is a geologist and author of a numerous, numerous books, including um, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health, co-authored with his wife, Anne Beclay, and um, a Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soils Back um, to Life, and Jim Donche, uh, the co-chair. And I'm sorry, I mispronounced your wife's name. Um, so I want you to correct that. Um, your wife's name is? Beclay, Anne Beclay. Anne Beclay. And uh, Jim Dante, he's the co-chair of the Nobel Conference 54 and director of the Johnson Center for Environmental Innovation at Gustavus College. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Good morning. Good Thank morning. You. Good morning. Thank you. So let's just go around the table and, and tell uh, the audience a little bit about um, your involvement in soil and the involvement at uh, this Nobel Conference. Well, I'm Dave, and I'm the, the geologist that you mentioned, and I'm actually a geomorphologist, which is a kind of geologist that studies the evolution of topography. So I came to looking at soils from a different perspective than, say, most farmers would. I came from looking at it from the bottom up, how you turn rocks into fertile soil. And that led me into the whole uh, world of the interactions of people uh, and soils through farming and those connections. And that's sort of a thread that runs through those books that you mentioned. And my wife, Anne, is a biologist. And so if you think of what makes fertile soil, it's the marriage of geology and biology. And um, I'm Jim Donchi, and uh, my real role here and, and my pleasure is actually being the co-chair of this year's conference, both because of the fact it's a really exciting topic. Um, I come from an agricultural background, and it's really important to Minnesota as well as the world. But we also get to host guests like Dave and Frank who come to discuss these topics, both from a scientific standpoint, but also from really the perspective of what should we do about what we know? How should we act on this knowledge? And it's always every year whatever topic it's a wonderful conversation i personally think this is really going to be a great conversation this year but um welcome people to attend in person or online it's a wonderful show so people can stream this online if they want yes and how do they do that um you go to the gustavus website gustavus.edu and look for a link to the nobel conference and then you can follow the instructions there Probably, given what we're doing this week, that'll be the first thing you see on the web page anyway. Um, and in person, you can also find links for purchasing tickets there if you want to a- attend in person. And you can a- attend um, at the door as well. Y- yes, per- ticket purchase is possible at the door. And you and the college has been hosting this for? 54 years. This is number 54. Yeah, it's been a, quite a tradition and a wonderful tradition. It's fun over the years to listen. We often have top experts. And so even years later after a conference, you'll hear someone quoted about some scientific topic and you say, oh yeah, I remember when they were at Gustavus. Frank? My name is Frank Jukater, native of Germany, now living in England. And I'm a trained historian who works a lot about environmental issues and tries to bring more environment into our understanding of history. And I really came to, well, soils and agriculture just by realizing that this is one of the great stories of modern history, the ability to feed 100 people by one single farm or something that we've never done before in world history and it's kind of a big gamble that we're still kind of trying to understand and and waiting uh, to see how it plays out and soils are a great window into this uh, great transformation of agriculture because you can look at soils in so many different ways and the approach you take says a lot about your own worldview, your own interests, and what, what kind of man or woman you are. Okay, so what's the big deal about soils? Just a bunch of dirt, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it is, you know, the, the interplay of, of different forces, biological, chemical, uh, physical, you can look at it short term, you can look at long term, you can uh, treasure it. I mean, you see uh, uh, lots of uh, references to the living soil and soil health throughout the history of civilizations. Dave can say more about this because I've written a big book about this. Um, so, so this is really a test of uh, where you are, where do you, where do you stand, and how a society ticks. Yeah, and I would uh, say that soil is something we're still learning to understand. And so it's a really good example of how sort of our knowledge of the natural world, our sort of scientific perspective on things, interfaces well or not with our day-to-day -day or societal practical applications. And you know, sort of views of the soil, how we think about it, have changed dramatically through history. But one of the things that um, we're coming to realize is how little we actually still know about it. Um, there's this wonderful quote from Leonardo da Vinci from, what, 500 years ago or so, but we know more about the stars above than the, the soil beneath our feet. That's as true today as it was, you know, half a millennium ago. Um, and a big part of that is learning about the role of soil life, the biology that we forgot about in the 20th century when we thought about soils and designed our modern agricultural system. That biology is really complicated. We're starting to open that box up and understand pieces of it, uh, but we're not using that perspective very well in our mainstream agricultural enterprise. Uh, and some of the things we're learning about it suggests that we really need to change that to be able to maintain it into the future. Right. So uh, you hold up a handful of soil and there's more organisms than there are people who've ever lived on the planet. I mean, it is that complex. For healthy, fertile soil, yes. If you hold up a handful of sterilized stuff, they drove strawberries <laughs> into the California uh, Great Valley, there won't be anything in it. <laughs> but yeah, healthy, fertile soil will have you know, you know trillions of organisms in a handful of soil. We're also realizing that our own bodies are not that different. There's 100 trillion microorganisms in our own gut. And the way those organisms interact with one another as an ecological system in, in ways that influence their host organisms. And so in the soil, it would be the organisms and the roots of plants. In our own bodies, it's our own microbiome and our gut. Those systems are incredibly important for the maintenance of the, the growth and health of plants or the growth and health of people. And we're just starting to understand them. Just and will understanding ignorance help us understand the complexity? I mean, you've, you've worked on, you use the phrase age of ignorance. Would you explain that, Frank? Well, it is, uh, well, we don't like to talk about ignorance when we talk about anything and certainly not about environmental issues that we all like to, you know, the argument of the environment movement was always we know and we, it's time to act. I think soils are a great way to insert the kind of good dose of ambivalence into this kind of self-confidence that we have because, well, as, as Dave pointed out, there are a lot of things that we do not know, yet we need to take uh, decisions on the soil and have been taking decisions on the soil uh, throughout history. Um, these are not decisions, cannot be decisions that really take the full uh, range of um, a, a possible perspective into account. This is always a narrow perspective. How do we arrive at that? I mean, you already mentioned that our approach to um, the soil over the last, say, 100 years has been exceedingly uh, non-biological uh, and that the uh, chemical uh, uh, view of the soil has been, I think, hegemonic for the last, say, 100 years. This has a lot to do, well, with new technologies, with the invention of synthetic nitrogen, which allows to fertilize much more easily than any previous generation could do. It has to do with agricultural technology. Uh, but it also has to do uh, with the creation of ignorance, the creation of these simple, uh, simple but misleading doctrines. Uh, and these doctrines don't evolve in a vacuum. They are, um, uh, they evolve in, in conflicts with other views. They are made by interest. The fertilizer interest is there was always much so money around let's, for let's, let's go into let's go into the Sorry. consequences. Sorry. No, let's go into what has happened because of humans' ignorance. Um, can you? Give us a 30-second history of humans in the soil. How about that <laughs> um, for a question? Yeah, well, you know, uh, I can kind of boil um, the one-sentence version of the Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations book are that societies that don't care of their soil don't last. <laughs> and, that, and it's a wild oversimplification, but that's the one-sentence view of it. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and one of the problems with uh, soil degradation through history is that you degrade soils slowly. It unfolds over a lifetime. 
uh, whether it's from uh, erosion of the soil through uh, through plowing and tillage that leaves the soil bare and vulnerable to erosion by wind or rain, such that each time it rains you strip off a couple millimeters of soil. You can only do that for so long before you quite literally burn through the soil, the stock of soil on a landscape. And some places, like the American Midwest, are blessed with better and more soil than some other places. So that time scale will, will vary for eroding the soil. But if you're degrading it faster than it's being re refreshed or restored or rebuilt, you're losing it. And as a geologist, that's where the time scale kind of issue comes in. It's like whether you lose it over a century or a thousand years, it still matters to the people who will be living at the end of that process what their ancestors have done to the land. So that long, slow degradation process um, is a problem, but it's hard to recognize when it happens slowly. And that, that's one of the values of being able to look at things like history in different civilizations and societies. And a lot of it does, as, as Frank was intimating, boil down to how we think about the land. How, how we, we think, think about the land yeah. and how that impacts us. But so right now we have, um, in, the, in the Midwest, we have less than 1% of the prairie. And I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but, you know, the prairie of feet of topsoil was really stupidly removed. <laughs> Would you guys agree with that? And that had devastating consequences? I'd like to draw attention to one important thing. You know, we say that humans engage with the soil. Well, yes, but we don't engage with that kind of abstract humans, but in a certain function. We are do that as farmers who need to make a living. Making a living on the farm, I think many listeners will know that from first experience, is not a trivial task. Uh, um, agriculture needs to be productive. You need to make a living off the soil. Um, other people see this from a disciplinary standpoint. They are framed by the system of specialized academic expertise that we have. And of course, that academic expertise has different types of sponsors. I think one of the big uh, issues about why do we not talk about the abolition of the soil is there was never a powerful lobby behind this, but there was always a big lobby behind chemical uh, fertilizers. Right, and so we're going to need to take a break. We are live. We are. You're listening to Food Friend Radio on AM 950. We're talking about Nobel Conference 54, which will be held at Gustavus Adolphus College on October 2nd and 3rd. Uh, the living soil. We're talking to some of the leading experts on the living soil. It's grilling season, and Vinaigrette has some sizzling recipes to inspire you. How about summertime grilled fajitas? Just create a marinade with our golden balsamic or champagne vinegar and chili garlic or jalapeno olive oil and marinade beef or chicken. Add red onions, red, green, and yellow peppers and throw them on the grill. Or try grilled steak brushed with our truffle or garlic olive oil. Visit us at 50th and Xerxes in South Minneapolis and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior or online at vinaigrettemn.com. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. Fall is an important time to call the window washing and exterior cleaning experts Blue Sky Services to prevent seasonal changes and potential winter damage. Look at your roof. Do you have black streaks, blotches, or algae? Don't wait for the cold to have these freeze. Cleaning is much cheaper than replacement. September's schedule is filling quickly, so don't neglect your windows, gutters, or siding cleaning. Call 651-447-4484 to book your fall cleaning before their busy season schedule fills and tell them that you're an AM950 listener. That's 651-447-4484 or blueskyservices.com. Hello, humans. It's Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many know that I have a diversity and inclusion company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. I want to share about a speaking event I'll be hosting on Monday, November 5th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis. I'll be giving my gray area thinking talk on how to be welcoming to others. I'd love for you to join me. Go to elliekrug.com and look at the Human is Human public events page for more. Please come and please tell others. See you then. Hi, this is Paul Metz inviting you to listen to the Wall of Power Radio Hour 
every weekend on AM 950. We are now in our third year of broadcasting on the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Min Post has called us one of the 22 most independently entertaining and cool radio shows in the Twin Cities. We feature cool people from all walks of life and from all 50 states. Every Saturday at 6 p.m., we played Sunday at 4 p.m. on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. My family conquered the family vacation thanks to my Toyota Sienna. This last summer, I drove 16 straight hours in a single day, heading to the coast, a test which challenges even the most comfortable vehicles. The Sienna passed with flying colors. Roomy, comfortable, and easy to drive, it made the long day a piece of cake. And when driving in a new town, the Toyota Sienna gives me the comfort and reliability I need. Test drive one yourself at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. To Food Freedom Radio, uh, where we uh, plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking about Nobel Conference 54, which is going to be held October 2nd and 3rd at Gustavus Adolphus College. And in studio with us is David Montgomery. And your book is endorsed um, by leading environmentalists Bill McKibben, Paul Hawk, and Woody Tash, but also the keyboard and the guitarist for the uh, talking heads, Jerry Harrison. Which, um, like, when we were going to break, you were talking about do worms need lobbyists? And music. Can be a lobbyist, right? Yeah, mu- music is a for is a, a um, you know art can be a, a a way to challenge your way of thinking. It can put new perspectives on things, and science and music, in my view, go very well together. Tell us more about that. Uh, well, I'm I'm a musician and a scientist, so I, I like the way they go together. And there are different ways of thinking and different ways of of sort of experiencing the world. And one of the things I found as a scientist that we don't teach in the sciences is creativity, how to open your mind to new ideas, how to look at different perspectives. And if you're doing interdisciplinary work, it's actually really important to be able to be open to ideas in other fields, but also to be able to critically evaluate them and figure out what are the things you need to bring into the problem at hand. And the art of scientific collaboration with people in other fields is not unlike the art of playing in a band, where, you know, as a bass player, I would play bass in one band at... um, it's called Good Bones. It's a great Seattle band. And I play guitar in a band called Big Dirt. And depending on what position you're playing in a band, you interact with the others in the band in a different way. But you value their knowledge and their creativity, and you try and build on it and feed on it with your own. And science can be the same way. We haven't tended to approach science that way in the sciences. We tend to teach it as narrow and disciplinary and you know, stay within your box in your field. I'm not one of those kind of scientists. Frank, did you want to hop on that? You started how how we think about the environment impacts our whole culture. And what if we were thinking about the environment from a musical, creative, kind of a jamming <laughs> with the, the deep knowing that's alive and the, the minerals coming up from the core of the earth, you know? Wouldn't that be kind of a, would that result in a different type of... Um, yeah, maybe I should set up a damn bed myself. You're know, going to be thinking you're, you know, just need a second career in today's job market. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but maybe, you know, can I... Can I change the perspective here a little bit. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to think very much here at this table now in terms of morals, in terms of awareness, in terms of mindsets that uh, then translate into action. What about the opposite way, the way from action towards uh, awareness? I think a good uh, part of uh, the history of learning about soil and soil conservation is about really learning out of the field and doing something there and then moving towards awareness and then moving uh, towards spreading this. I mean, we mentioned that a lot of the knowledge was uh, chemically focused. Of course, there's also the organic tr- uh, agricultural tradition. Uh, what you see, we go through the files of conversations, you know, there's a lot of hostility towards them. But once you make it to the field, once you actually talk about plants, about soils, about, you look at soil profiles, all these things, you know, then things really calm down. I think the in, in the environmental discourse, we often talk about, you know, we need more awareness. Well, yes, but uh, it's not awareness that builds actions, often action that builds awareness. Right. Um, and so one of the things I was reading yours that I didn't realize is in the 1930s in Germany, uh, biodynamic agriculture was widely practiced. Yes, and, right. and so 
And, and what made me think of what world would we have today if Ruf, Rudolf Steiner's ideas on biodynamic mm -hmm. farming and that honoring of the soil, what if that was the dominant mm -hmm. paradigm? What, was if, what if that made the money? Well, counterfactual history is a forbidden fruit for historians, but uh, <laughs> it's important to recognize organic agriculture was not you know, consciously made by some people. It was designed as the other by the Kamelic approach in the way you know, Steiner and his biodynamic farming was kind of a gift to the, the, the chemical lobby by saying, you know, don't go down that route, just take our chemical fertilizer. It's really, uh, you know, one of the big disadvantages of biodynamic farming was it was pretty complicated. You had to watch the soil, you have to think for yourself. So in a way, the story of soil knowledge here is one of the simple but false doctrines winning over a complicated and realistic one. So I think that's a tension we need to think through in terms of soils, uh, not just in 30s uh, Germany. Yeah, and one of the one of the factors that played into that, of course, was that one of the reasons that the style of farming that I talk about in Growing Revolution or the style of biodynamic farming actually works to build fertility in the soil is through the microbial action of the bacteria and the fungi in the soil that was not understood in the 1930s. The science was not there to actually understand the mechanisms behind the ideas of the Steiners and the Albert Howards and the Lady Eve Balfours who were the sort of the early organic pioneers who had experientially based systems that worked and they felt worked really well. But if you dig into some of the explanations behind it, they weren't there in terms of the state of science of the time. We now have tools that actually are allowing us to open up and understand why some of those experience-based perspectives actually work to cultivate the beneficial life in the soil, which helped close nutrient cycling loops and actually promoted the health and growth of crops. Um, and it also, well, I mean, that mm -hmm. scientists are really good at dismissing things they don't understand. Right. And, and we've talked about this, the, the whole role of humility yeah. and really understanding that. Okay, you're calling for a fifth revolution in your book. What do you mean by that, David? Yeah, fifth agricultural revolution. And, and I'm sure historians of agriculture would probably argue about how many agricultural <laughs> revolutions there have been. Oh, you like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I don't really have a dog in that fight. I think there have been four because I lump them the way they are. And geologists are notorious for either being lumpers or splitters. We each have our own preferred flavor. And I'm not going to argue too much about whether there's been three, four, or seven so far. I think there have been four. And we're, but the key point is that we're due for a fifth. And what I think that fifth is, well, if you go through the, the first four as I view them, there's the, act of the, the idea of agriculture in the first place, number one. The idea of soil husbandry that different societies developed at different places and different contexts around the world in terms of things like uh, crop rotations and, and, um, um, and cover crops, uh, integrating animal husbandry and uh, so forth, planting legumes to help keep fields fertile. And then there's the mechanization and industrialization that swept through agriculture in the 19th and 20th centuries, and then the biotech revolution that's still ongoing with the green revolution and GMOs and all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to argue about whether any of those were good or bad so much as saying that we're really coming to the point now where our practical experience and our knowledge of the science is pointing towards a different way of looking at the soil in the in the in the act and system of agriculture that's based on promoting and building soil health. And what soil health is is essentially is cultivating the beneficial life in the soil to try and promote those hundreds of trillions of organisms in a fist or shovel full of soil. As a farmer, it, it's it, having those organisms work in favor of the farmer rather than trying to work against them through chemical additives is a real different way of looking at the problem of farming. It's a sort of a philosophical underpinning that's the basis for it. So what I'm arguing in, in Growing a Revolution is that revolution that I'm referring to in the title is the idea of a soil health-based rev revolution in terms of how we think about the soil. Because it would change our practices. So if we had this revolution, so the end point is um, it would um, help um, address climate change, it would improve human health, um, and um, help our future generations. It would also be more profitable for farmers. Ooh, which is it why would I'm make some, money too. It would make money too. And that's, that's one of the reasons that Growing a Revolution is actually a very optimistic book. Now, maybe a bit naively optimistic, but I, I'm kind of happy with that because the Erosion of Civilizations book was a little depressing. And when you look back at the history of many societies and their lack of land stewardship, but that combination of being able to put carbon in the ground, which helps with climate, is something that will help build fertility of the land. And when you build fertility of the land, you can cut down on fertilizer and other inputs that are expensive for farmers today. And that combination of being able to grow as much food by spending less on the upfront inputs is a recipe for a profitable farm. 
profitable farming that's sustainable long-term. We're talking about Nobel Conference 54. We're live, 952-946-6205. With all the convenient big box stores that sell appliances, why do so many Minnesotans choose Warner Stellion? Check online to learn that Warner Stellion is a Minnesota family-owned business for over 60 years. Warner Stellion sells more brands than anyone else, and our passionate specialists are committed to impressing you so much that you'll refer us to everyone you know. That's our mission here at Warner Stellion. Ask around, check us out online, and when it's your time to buy appliances, join over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners and choose the specialists, Warner Stellion. Lowry Hill Meats, your neighborhood full-service butcher shop that works directly with family farms. Using whole animals gives Lowry Hill Meats the benefit of preparing custom cuts and dry aging. They offer beef, lamb, goat, pork, and poultry, including whole duck, roasting hens, turkey, quail, pheasant, and Cornish hens. Their sausages are made fresh in-house weekly using 40 rotating recipes. Try their handcrafted sandwiches. They are second to none. Lowry Hill Meats is located at 1934 Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis or online at LowryHillMeats.com. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shamblot from Shamblot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. And I'm Rachel Shamblot. Did you know a lot of people are afraid of the dentist? You don't need to be afraid of my dad. He makes going to the dentist comfortable and even fun. We don't care if you're a dental regular or haven't seen a dentist in years. We just want to make you comfortable and get you out of pain. If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. The Fall St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, will be running October 12th, 13th, and 14th. This is a must-do experience that you will love. Over the weekend, you'll have a chance to explore a wide variety of art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries. Hosting over 300 artists, up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. The Art Crawl sprawls over 30 locations. Join the Art Crawl and discover outstanding art for you to own. And when you buy local art, you're providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community with a free transit pass. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the Art Crawl. Be sure to get details at the thestatepaulartcrawl.org. That's the thestatepaulartcrawl.org. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Hawes. Saturday, chance of showers with a high near 52. Sunday, chance of showers with a high near 53. And Monday, rain with a high near 54. Since 1994, Auto Technical has been fortunate enough to receive car donations in Minneapolis and St. Paul. In the past 20 years, our service territory has grown throughout all Minnesota and parts of Wisconsin. Donate to Auto Technical. We jumpstart lives by giving struggling families the important gift of reliable transportation. Find out more at autotechnical.org. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking? Back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline. We're live, and we welcome your calls, 952-946-6205. We're talking about Nobel Conference 54, and we're with some leading um, thinkers on the role of the living soil. Uh, Dr. Frank Utker is is an environmental historian and um, also an historian about how we think about the environment. David Montgomery is author of several books, including his new book, his newest book is Growing a Revolution, and Jim Donche is co-chair of Nobel Conference 54 and director of the Johnson Center for the for Environmental Innovation at Gus Davis College. So welcome again. And, you know, on break, we, you wanted to correct, it's you're calling for a fifth revolution, and you wanted to say it's a fifth evolution. Yeah, well, of course, as a historian, you know that the revolutions, well, uh, experience tells there are side effects when you talk about revolutions. And um, a, a lot about, I mean, a lot about history of agriculture is about not, not that single paradigm, but really about combining several things and accumulative learning. 
And one of my eureka moments when I was going through files and trying to trace this great transformation, one of the things that I found amazing is to see how many farmers had bad feelings about this chemical transformation, about the mechanical transformation, uh, how much of what they were doing were actually against what they learned at school and what they felt was good. So there were a lot of uh, worries, a lot of concerns, a lot of observations that did not match, but nothing came out of this. So there was really more, uh, a lot of resources there were for a different, more sustainable approach. And I think they're still out there. I mean, there's still people watching things on their own fields. Um, that they do not like and yet would like to have a hand on. So uh, the revolution metaphor, uh, as, as much as I agree with the goal, uh, may get us back to this uh, you know, top-down model. Uh, if you listen to farmers, if you talk with them intensely, you learn, I think, a lot about what you can work with and you know, pursue more kind of evolutionary path. And there's times right now a lot of farmers are looking for change. Yeah, very much. In fact, I actually see the primary impetus for what I see as this emerging next evolution slash revolution um, is coming bottom up from the farmers. Um, and it's I what I did in writing Growing Revolution is I took six months off from my job teaching and I, I visited farmers around the world and who had already restored fertility to their land and asked them, what did you do? Um, what was what were what were your methods? What were your secrets? And then I sort of stood back to try and integrate. Well, what were the commonalities? And it, boy, a lot of it boiled down to cultivating the life in the soil. That's the subtitle to the book. But the three really big common principles they shared were minimal disturbance or no-till farming, uh, planting cover crops, and rotating more than one or two crops in a field, you know, getting four or five crops. Some of them were reintegrating livestock into their field. Some weren't. You don't necessarily have to do that to bring your soil back to life, but it can accelerate it. But those three principles, the minimal disturbance, the cover cropping, and always having the ground covered with living plants and uh, having a diversity of crops, two of those are not new ideas. You know, the idea of cover crops and crop rotations are what I like to call in, in the book ancient wisdom. And it's merging that ancient wisdom with the modern technology that allows us to actually do no-till. We have new kinds of planters. We have new equipment to allow us to do that. We have new ways of thinking. Um, those three things, getting the modern technology and the ancient wisdom integrated, would be, I think, an aspect of the evolution that Frank's talking about. And I couldn't agree more than that with that in terms of a way to look at it. In fact, if you look back at any of those revolutions that we tend to identify in agriculture, I think they all are probably examples of that kind of evolutionary thought. Um, some things get, like, tossed overboard. And in the industrialization and mechanization of agriculture in the 19th century, a lot of that ancient wisdom got tossed overboard. Um, Maybe I think it's I, a productive way to think about it, yeah. Can I suggest one more principle, that is keep on improving. I think it's important oh, yeah. to recognize when yeah. you talk about the soil, this is not something that you have kind of one recipe that you apply and then, you, yeah, then you've done it, then, then, then everything is good. I think this is really important for, for, for you know, the mindset in which you approach these challenges. I and mean, we like to think about environmental problems as problems that we solve, where at some point we are, you know, at a point where we can say, okay, we have dealt with this. I think what we can learn from the soil, and not just for agriculture, but really more generally for environmental challenges in the 21st century, there is no point in the future that where a solution is there, but there is a path that we can pursue, and we need to look at these principles again and again and see how we use them and how we make it productive. So this is kind of a balancing act that we need to pursue uh, well, as long as we want to go, go, be good stewards of the soil. So this long-term perspective is, I think, really important. It's something that we can learn from the soil for many environmental challenges. Yeah, and the power and value of tinkering and sort of intelligent oh, yeah. tinkering. That was, that was one of the things that all the farmers that I visited who had been really successful and were sort of like early adopters and leaders of, the, of what we could call a regenerative style of agriculture, they were all tinkerers. They did exactly what, you're, what you were talking about in terms of Seeing what worked, and then if it worked well, do more of it. If it didn't, do less of it. Um, but they were challenging sort of their own ways of thinking and experimenting. And if you look at those three principles that I laid out, um, they don't tell you how to farm. They're, they're basically, they don't tell you which implements to do. They don't tell you which crops to do. Figuring out how to actually tailor those kind of broad principles to the actual act of farming on a particular piece of land is a challenge and it requires and I think it is best served by that style of sort of uh, experimentation and tinkering um, that some of the most progressive and intelligent farmers I know are and really immersed in. I want to go to this uh, phrase that Michael Cheney saw as a graffiti. Um, it, it was a study the past but leave the future a mystery. Mm -hmm. 
I think that that's, that's really it. I mean, we're kind of we, we have accumulated experiences. We have accumulated an imaginary of of the past. We have all these you know good ideas about stewards of the shell, but it's not like you know now put this to action and everything is good. I mean, this is uh, uh, we're in a century now where we need to experiment with a lot of things, keep a lot of balls in the air, and and combine this. So, and I think it's important to say this, not just in terms of uh, getting academic messages across in the right way, but also a way to say, well, hey, if you want to conserve your soil as a farmer, this is the way to take charge, to take control of your own farm. I, as conference co-chair, I'd, I'd just like to jump in and say these, this discussion has really pointed to some of the other speakers and some of the other things going on in the conference because, for example, with farmer experimentation, we have Ray Archuleta, known as Ray the Soils Guy, coming, and he's had an entire career, first with the NRCS, now as a private consultant, working with farmers to say, well, how do we take these principles and in, in, in your place, your soil, put them into place? And in, I've been to one of his workshops. He actively encourages farmer experimentation. Oh, it's cold in the spring. How do we get a cover crop in? Maybe we can seed over the snow. And it turns out it works. Um, a little bizarre. Your neighbors think you're crazy, but <laughs> it, 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 in some situations, you can you can do that. Um, we we have on the microbiology side. You know, some people say, "Well, what's what's the problem with tillage?" And it turns out we have Suzanne Simard coming. She's been studying mycelium, fungus underground. Turns out they're part of the networks that pan, that that help plants communicate, trade nutrients, fight off disease. And when you plow, you disrupt those. So the edict of saying try not to till is really try not to disrupt what the plants are doing for you. Um, can, can I add one more thing here? I mean, this is all, you know, scientific knowledge is, is very important. I think the historical knowledge is also important here that it creates a certain range of imagination. When we talk about environmental problems nowadays, we always talk about things in the past that we seize upon. And it's interesting to see how selective we are and how we prioritize certain visions over others. Let me just mention the, the erosion disaster that everybody knows, the Dust Bowl. What we think of when we hear the word Dust Bowl, we think about these walls of sand that were moving. We think about pictures uh, and about a situation where basically nature is overwhelming humans. Well, part of the story of the Dust Bowl is also about uh, smaller erosion events, where erosion was basically a local phenomenon where soil was blowing, that was the terminology at the time, blowing from a neighboring field, that was actually a situation where you could do something as a farmer. You could just go over, plow the field, or uh, change, uh, make some changes that actually defended your own field. Stop plowing the field. <laughs> well, stop plowing the field. Yes, stop plowing the field. Yeah, and, and, and it's a thing very important to tell these stories too. I mean, this is uh, about taking charge, controlling uh, some of the effects, and, well, exerting soil stewardships. It's interesting that yeah. these stories don't make it. We always like to think about this in this kind of disaster terminology. And if we think of the big stories as, well, we need chemical farming to feed the world or everyone will die. I mean, where did that, is, is that a true story? Well, that is the monoculture of the mind. That, that I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, say that again. Monoculture mon of the mind. Monoculture of the mind. This obsession, there is that one paradigm that we need to follow and that uh, gets us to, 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 to uh, uh, the Holy Land. Uh, you, it runs through, through historical culture, this, this, this obsession with that one paradigm and everything else needs to fall in place. If you do agriculture, I think it's a great place to learn many things have to align. And if you look at long-term things, uh, short-term things, social things, economic things, cultural things, uh, it's really finding the right balance here and not, the, not, not having that one thing that saved the world. Yeah, and that that um, um, you, know, you if if you can crunch the numbers and in terms of looking at whether or not we could feed the world with alternative styles of agriculture, we can. I mean, that's the numbers back that up. <laughs> um, if you looked at all the farmers that I visited, right in Growing Revolution, some of, most of which are conventional farmers in the sense that they will use some agrochemicals, but I started teasing some of them that they were organic-ish farmers because they had so weaned themselves off of nitrogen and pesticides that they weren't spending much money for it anymore, which they liked a lot. Um, save some money. And save some money. They, they have to make money. And their yields were better than their neighbors. They, they improved their yields. They improved their yields. Now, there's a transition period. So you don't, if you take a field that's been on you know, intensive nitrogen for many years and you've degraded the organic matter in the soil, which is kind of the natural engine of fertility, um, you have to rebuild that organic matter before you can get the full benefit of not needing as much fertilizer and pesticide. 
but you can get there. And what shocked me as a geologist is how fast that transition can happen. We're talking years to a decade or two, not centuries. Wow, and that is it's, hopeful. It, it's a short enough time period to be relevant to the bottom line of a farm. I mean, if a farmer wants to leave their grandchildren the land much better off than they have today, there's a way to do it that involves um, you know, a short transition. Uh, I would love to see our society actually support farmers in making that transition, but I've interviewed and met many farmers who've done it on their own without any kind of assistance, and they're far more profitable today than they were and more profitable than their neighbors. Well, and and they're growing just as it, much food. Like, like so. I said, it's grassroots. So how, yeah. do, how do individual people who eat support that, this grassroots movement? That's a really good question. This is probably going to take both of you outside of your expertise. <laughs> but you've talked a lot about knowledge and how we know. So what kind of an agricultural education system should we have? Because we've got this transition coming. Here in the Midwest, the average age of farmers is creeping up. Mm-hmm. A lot of farms are, have, need to have a succession plan. And if, if you want to farm differently, obviously you have to have people that understand these, these different techniques. Can, can either of you think about how, what, what kind of – how should we be learning about agriculture? Have you seen any models? I think first of all, really ha- to talk about this in a, in a diverse way. There is more than one way to farm. And uh, we have this discussion about feeding the world. Can we do all organic? Can we uh, – or can we not do it? I mean, I'm just wondering, why, why are we having this discussion? You know, that we, have a, we have a big planet. We have different agricultural systems. We have different approaches. And I think this is something we should bring into the education system too. I mean, going into agriculture is a way to do your thing and to try out something new and, of course, to take full accountability. But, you know, there was a time when there was basically a kind of a rough script, get bigger, get better, get out. Well, we're beyond that point. We have uh, a room here for experimentation, for entrepreneurship, uh, and if I may say this as a new, not, non-U.S. citizen, true American ideals. If you go into <laughs> agriculture, this can be your American dream. Yeah, and we also need to teach a different style and philosophy of thinking about the soil and looking at the soil in terms of thinking about farming as an exercise in applied ecology and in building soil health as the ally of the farmer. And because when I took soil science in graduate school, we were not taught that. We were not taught much about the biology. It was all about chemistry and physics. And there's nothing wrong with chemistry and physics unless all you think about is chemistry and physics. If you right. forget and so the biology. Water is life. Water is life. Water is life. You're, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We are live. 952-946-6205. We're talking about Nobel Conference 54 held at Gustavus College on October 2nd and 3rd. Let me tell you what. Be sure to pick up your copy of this month's Natural Awakenings magazine, a free local guide to a healthier and more balanced life. Each monthly issue includes timely, local, national, and global stories. Learn about alternative and complementary medicine, nutrition, fitness for body and mind, personal growth, sustainability, and much more. Natural Awakenings can be found at area health food stores, food co-ops, and retail locations. More information is available at NaturalTwinCities.com. That's NaturalTwinCities.com. Finding the best foods the Twin Cities has to offer is easy with EatLocalMinnesota.com. Offering the top local and independently owned restaurants, EatLocalMinnesota.com has everything from burger joints to cocktails and fine dining. Join the Seward Co-op Creamery Cafe for seasonal dishes using locally sourced ingredients, Minnesota craft beers, and organic wines on the new outdoor patio. Their delicious vegetarian, vegan, and omnivorous menu options are sure to satisfy. Sustaining a healthy community, find Seward Co-op Creamery Cafe at 2601 East Franklin Avenue in Minneapolis and online at coopcreamery.coop. Enjoy all the flavors of Milton's, where they specialize in dishes like grilled jerk chicken, shrimp and grits, and much more, all made from scratch. Pick from Milton's large selection of beer and wine and finish it off with desserts like Bananas Foster. Milton's also serves breakfast every day starting at 7.30 a.m. It's a good day to be indigenous. Native Earths Radio presents I'm Awake. Our weekly Native American talk radio show will discuss national and local Native American news and events. Local and national guests will help us keep current with Mother Earth, tribal, and Twin City issues. Native American issues are human issues. We invite all people to walk hand-in-hand with our struggles, victories, and achievements. Listen Saturdays at 2 p.m. I am awake. I'm John Peterson, and at Ferndale Market, we are proud to provide our free-range turkey to local restaurants and natural food stores. 
One of our partners since the beginning has been Birchwood Cafe, and we're excited to announce a new partnership product, the Birchwood Turkey Burger Patty. Made from their popular turkey burger recipe, using our antibiotic-free turkey and Birchwood's local and organic ingredients. Put an end to bland turkey burgers. Find this and all our Ferndale turkey products at your local co-op or natural food store. Visit FerndaleMarket.com. Hi, Sarah from Vinaigrette. Farmer's markets are everywhere and summer's bounty is limitless. Try rustic caprese salad using spring mix, fresh mozzarella, grape with cherry tomatoes, red onion, fresh basil, garlic olive oil, and our 18-year-age balsamic. Or try grilled romaine brushed with Tunisian olive oil. Vinaigrette makes it easy to love your vegetables. Visit us at 50th and Xerxes in South Minneapolis or 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and we were talking about Nobel Conference 54. And Jim, you wanted to mention some basics. Who are the other speakers? People can get tickets at the door or watch it free online. That's right. And we also have some side events. Um, we have some arts. We have a reading of uh, works of literature, theater about the soil. We have a music concert in the evening. Um, there's also actually going to be a student choreo- choreographed dance out at our student garden. Um, there's a soil experience exhibit, particularly aimed at high school students to, to learn about things. There's actually a tillage exhibit where we talk about sort of why do we, why have we been tilling the soil and what's changed. And it, it, we can't have a full uh, machinery hill like they have at the state fair, but we're having a mini one. We're calling it Till Hill. Sorry for the, for the bad pun. But mm-hmm. to really just talk about the history of, of how we've been moving the soil around. I, I'm also, I, I've, been, I've been sitting here like, this is why I like this conference, and this is why I like this topic, because of all the connections. And I already mentioned Ray Archuleta and Suzanne Simard. We also have Jack Gilbert, who, okay, we got a soil conference, but we've got a guy whose primary academic appointment is in the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago. Why that? Well, it turns out he's studying microbes in the world and on our bodies and how they affect human health and how that relates to things like kids getting dirty or not. Um, we have one of the world's preeminent experts on carbon sequestration in the soil, Ratan Lal, who's made a career his entire life of studying. The potential for carbon farming is yeah. phenomenal. And with him, Claire Chenu from France, who was the UN's ambassador for the soil. She might challenge Ratan a little bit, has some questions about what's going on. She's got a little more critical eye on that question. And so all these speakers together are going to be interacting it's going to be like a big music jam with people who really exactly thought deeply right. it, it's about a, it's soil. It's a science jam. That's it's a right. science jam. It's a science yeah. jam. Okay, um, we do have a call from Lynette. Good morning, Lynette from Cheska. And important to, uh, that uh, things are taken for granted. Welcome. Oh, hi. Good morning. It's such an interesting show. I was just thinking as you guys were talking about this, isn't it interesting how the things that are the most essential to life are the most misunderstood, and think about, like, dirt and all the connotations of dirt, like, you know, somebody's treating you like dirt, you know, and it's like, but dirt is a wonderful thing, and it should be respected, and, you know, and and that's just making me think of (laughs) how sad and interesting that is, and so thank you for the show. Thank you, Lynette, for calling. Yeah, it's very meaningful, because if we stop treating dirt like dirt, maybe we'll stop treating pigs and cows and each other like dirt, too. Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, things that really run through soil history, that this is a problem that's lying under the radar, even in the age of environmentalism, where we have strong awareness. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, the, the environmental movement is an overwhelmingly urban movement, and that's one of the points where it really shows that this is something that is far removed uh, from the everyday experience of an urban supermarket user, or it seems to be, you know, in your shopping choices, you do make these uh, decisions that you encounter them. Um, and it's really a, a challenge to bridge them. I'm very grateful for the Nobel Conference to pick this topic because at the most fundamental level, you recognize you did not think about this enough. We, we definitely have, have had people say, so why are you doing a conference about soil? What's this about? Mm-hmm. And usually after a little bit of discussion, the eyes get wide and they're like, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't know about this. Or I didn't think about this. <laughs> implication of this topic. And it's so important to connect this to personal health, how our health of ourselves is connected to our health of our soil. And right now we're facing epidemics of chronic diseases, epidemics of anxiety and depression. David, is this linked? Uh, Yeah, that's actually the subject that uh, Ann and I are working on a new book on, is the connection of soil health to human health. Because it turns out that the way that we farm, 
uh, actually influences how things like mineral micronutrients get into our food. Uh, how things like the phytochemicals, the chemicals that plants make that our gut microbiome ferments into things that support our health, those get into our food or not in great part based on how we farm. So we're basically tracking that stuff down and we just We've been, you know, basically taking food that we can get in Seattle, running them through blenders, running them through the mass spec, and looking at, well, you know, how much <laughs> copper and cobalt and iron and zinc and the kind of things that we need to support our enzyme function are in foods grown in different ways. And it turns out it can have a huge effect on that. And, you know, how much does that influence the, the epi modern epidemic of chronic diseases? It's obviously not the only cause. There's what we eat. We're eating, you know, our diet is not as good as it perhaps could be across the board. But there's the question of how much does it matter how we grow our food? And so we're diving into that for the next book. And it looks like there's some big connections that can be drawn uh, between those. Um, we don't have a title or a date for that. We're literally uh, starting it. Um, but, but your new book is Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soils Back to Life. And there are signed copies at Common Good Books right now that, that you signed yesterday. So Common yep. Good Books, you can get uh, Growing a Revolution. Well, you... you do buy that book. I mean, that, 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 they do read it. Um, but also think, you know, soil is something we should be more aware of, but yeah. we should be probably, you know, looking at all the discussions we had at this, around this table here, look a bit at the perspective. You know, you can be, become aware of this for a couple of days. You can take away, I hope, a lot. But in the end, we are living in an urbanized society where the farmer experience is a remote one. So maybe we should also think about ways to talk about soil problems in a wider context. I like to talk about soil problems in the context of the general problems of monoculture. There is, I mean, Dave, you mentioned this, you know, crop rotation is one of the best ways, broad crop rotation, one of the best ways to improve soil health. But monoculture is also a problem on other fronts. It makes these dependencies. We have so many, as a historian, you know, have so many agricultural systems that banked on one single commodity. And then uh, when that commodity came into crisis, biological, economically, uh, things were falling apart. There's the weed problems, there's the pest problems. So you can really build a, a combination around monoculture, and the great thing about monoculture is it's a practice. There's something we've fallen for as humans. It's not an academic concept. There is no biological theory of monoculture. So you can really challenge uh, this on, on, on multiple fronts and really have a buzzword that brings in well, soil conservation through a back door. It's, it's a great example of that if you look at the ag urban agriculture movement, people growing food in the cities, and people say, why do that? And it's much more efficient to have people out in the country, grow the food and bring it into the city. But in the first place, it changes the mindset. Now people are who are eating the food and buying the food are thinking about it, even if they don't produce all their food. And then if you actually look at worldwide, agriculture worldwide, most farmers do more than one thing. They farm and they do something else, if you, if you look at the world. If a kid grows a vegetable, they're more likely to eat vegetables. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's that simple. And then you're more likely to have pollinators. But also, both you and I agree, I mean, gardening is therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's about coming alive to the natural world and and living in a in a more um, robust living. Yeah, and soil restoration can happen in the city. There's all kinds of places where we have opportunities to improve to turn what's actually really probably better called dirt into healthy soil. Uh, and the Hidden Half of Nature book, the one that I wrote with Anne, is about how she she's a gardener. It's her source of therapy. She transformed our yard from something that had about 1% carbon to having about 10% over the course of about a year. I'm sorry, about a decade. That completely changed the character of our land, of the life in the land. We literally saw life come back to our yard in the same progression, in a gross sense, as it evolved on Earth. It's very and exciting. It and unfortunately, we're down to our last 40 seconds. So um, I'm going to do a shout out. Um, again, I, I thank you so much, Dr. Frank Ucutter. Uh, He's an environmental historian and a historian about how we think about the environment. David Montgomery is a geologist and author of several books, including The Microbial Roots of Life, The Hidden Half of Nature, and Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And Jim Donche is co-chair of the Nobel Conference 54 and director of the Johnson Center for Environmental Innovation at Gus Davis College. You can check out Nobel Conference 54, October 2nd and 3rd. Third, you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Spread it good over here. Warm